that's right. All right, let's do the Matrix. Okay. Like I said, this might get might get a little bit. This might just be me rambling. That's all right. Um, that's pretty but, much what uh, the movie is. So <laughs> good. Um, someone rambling. That's uh It's we're doing method podcasting. Yes. Um, Welcome back to FilmNerds.com. I'm Matt Scalisi, and once again, we're here to discuss prestige blockbusters, the movies that made an impact both at the box office and in the critics' circles. And uh, with us once again, our guest programmer for this series, Ben Stark. Welcome back, Ben. Hello. Um, so today, this is the, uh, the fourth installment of our of our series here, and we're going to be talking about the Matrix from 1999. Um, it's definitely one of the prestige blockbusters of our generation. Ben, uh, guys who are in their in their sort of mid twenties as we record this, I guess 2008. Um, you know, we were in. We were in high school or uh, just going into college uh, when these Matrix films were released. Um, but but this first one uh, definitely was difficult to group it in with the later two. It was, it was sort of a lower profile uh, film. And in fact, uh, it actually doesn't technically meet the standards that we set for the movies in this series, which was $200 million domestically at the box office. And... Oh, wow. uh, and and it actually it actually topped out at 171.4 million domestically, but as as editor of FilmNerds.com, I'm going to allow an exception here. Also, let's just let it be representative of the whole trilogy. How's that sound? I and agree. That, I'm okay with that. But but even on top of that, I think if you look yeah. at, uh, I, you, I I I honestly obviously I did, I did my research on the tomato meter. Reading, yeah, uh, but not the domestic box office. I just assumed that this made a crap load of money that year. I well, thought it was like the Phantom Menace was threatened by the Matrix being the number one movie that year, but maybe that's not how it was. I well, know. I think it's it's deceiving, and part of that is because uh, it seems like everyone, male or female, our age, Ben, has seen this movie, yeah. and, and, and think, that's part yeah. of the reason I'm okay with putting this in the series. I, you know, right. when you put this was one of those movies, uh, and and the Shawshank Redemption is probably the other best example I can think of that. It's a movie that actually got more popular uh, once it was released on DVD, and and I think when you factor that in, this is a movie that has made its studio over two hundred million dollars for sure. Yeah, a lot of people attribute the success of DVD to like that DVD was just kind of like a an early adapter kind of interest until the Matrix came out on DVD, and that's when like everybody was like, ah, oh, now I got to get a DVD player. <laughs> so, so I think it, it was like right at the beginning of the whole DVD craze. It yeah. I, it's definitely a DVD you see on almost everyone's shelves. Yeah. Everybody's yeah, got the, the Matrix original. DVD, and it's in the crappy box with the the plastic. Yeah, the cardboard. Album. Yeah. So those early Warner Brothers DVDs are terrible. Anyway, sorry. well, so our, our other requirement it it certainly more than met. It hit eighty six percent on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. So there's no question this is a a movie that made a major impact commercially and uh, critically. And 
you know, there's a there's a lot to say about the Matrix. There's there's a lot of different aspects to it that make it an interesting installment in this prestige blockbusters series. There's all of the philosophical and sort of intellectual aspects of this movie, uh, but that's really not why this movie is as popular as it is. The movie became a big deal, at least uh, at least in my opinion. For the same reason that Jurassic Park and Terminator 2 did, as we've talked about earlier in this series. Uh, and that's because it featured a quantum leap in special effects. Uh, it, you know, The Matrix has an interesting storyline for sure. It has uh, a really sort of complex mythology to it. Uh, it's got some some interesting things to say on a, on a philosophical level. But people went to see this movie ultimately... Uh, because of bullet time, am I wrong there, Ben? Uh, yeah, I think I think it got a lot of people in the theater that way. But I think uh, um, I think it kind of got the got where it was culturally and like you know in in pop culture, uh, you know through through what you're talking about the ideas and stuff behind it. And uh, is is this a good time for me to go on my rant? Go ahead, rant away. <laughs> nice. Uh, like I, I was, I was telling you earlier, I'm, I wasn't too prepared for this. It's been a couple. I've seen The Matrix several times. It's but it's been a couple years. And um, you call yourself a nerd? Uh, no, I don't. No, uh, okay. Much, <laughs> Just me. Uh, yeah. Um, no, but like, I, I, I was like listening to uh, Rage Against the Machine, and you know, has that song "Wake Up" at the end yeah. over the credits. And uh, I was a big fan of Rage Against the Machine when I was in high school. As everybody else sure i was too i'll admit to that yeah and uh i think i think what kind of kept it going what kind of kept um kept the matrix in in the kind of cultural uh uh subconscious i guess is the way that it was the summing up of like all these little ideas that had been like off the map kind of like the 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 thing that's like so popular with with people our age or was when we were in like in high school and kind of in college was this this these ideas that were that during the the eighties and the nineties uh, there was like the growing conspiracy theory that like conglomerate America and the u s government are together, and the banking the world bank is together, and they're all tinkering and they're all working to stay powerful and they're all working to keep power in the hands of, like, the the victors of, like, World War II. You know, like, the white Americans and the rich British, you know? And there's those, those all those conspiracy theories. And now it's kind of run rampant, you know? And, like, in, in big blockbuster movies that are not prestige level, um, you see that idea all the time, you know? And you, you, you see those conspiracy theories linked to even, like, presidential candidates like Ron Paul, you know? And even a lot of people in our in our kind of generation, in our kind of circles, you know, stood behind Ron Paul because he had kind of like the same people that like Ron Paul are the same people that watch those crazy YouTube videos about the World Bank, right? And about how the the, the you know the Bushes of the 1920s were Nazi profiteers, um, or I guess 30s. I'm an idiot, but uh, so like all this stuff, I think it kind of came to a head and. It all, obviously, it's all in the Rage Against Machine songs, you know, and we all kind of listen to the music. We're like, yeah, the music's good. The words, kind of crazy, kind of kooky, but, you know, I think we all kind of wanted to believe it because it's kind of a high drama idea, you know, that there's evil, machine-like 
old white men keeping keep, keeping themselves in power. Um, and I think it all kind of came to a head and kind of came a popular belief, or at least a popular subconscious idea with the Matrix, which is all about you know kind of waking up that we're that we're asleep at the wheel of a car that's driven by these greedy forces that we're not even aware of and that they're blinding us, you know. Uh, but of course, the big funny thing is that the Matrix was a movie made by Warner Brothers, the biggest conglomerate at in yeah, 1999, and made them 171.4 million dollars. Exactly, and yeah, and that's exactly it's exactly what's kind of sad and depressing about Rage Against the Machine. Well, you know, <laughs> but, look yeah, uh, to to continue on our tangent that's completely uncinematic related. Really, <laughs> I, I I think I think it's okay. And, you know, when we're talking about prestige blockbusters, we're talking about movies that, yeah, they made a lot of money for a big corporation. Um, but, you know, I, I think there there are uh, ways in this in this sort of cynical capitalist world that uh, while money is being made, you know, minds can be enlightened. Uh, truths can be shared. And since you can't do anything uh, effectively without it being profitable anyway – uh, yeah, you know, let Warner Brothers make some money, put some great special effects in there and a couple of big-name movie stars. Um, and, you know, and your message is going to get out there. It's Is That's it going to be as subversive as as you'd hope it to be? Maybe not, but, uh, you know, you're making, you're making a lot of kids and a lot of, you know, high school and college students think about some things that maybe they wouldn't have thought about otherwise. Uh, and, I mean, like I was saying, if, if that's true and if – if it kind of got into our subconscious idealism, then who's to say that the next president won't be somebody like Ron Paul? You know, that the people that – if there's an increasing amount of people that have these, this kind of ideology or kind of are like, well, you know, I was kind of worried about that and it almost seems true now. Uh, if enough people feel like that, then eventually, if the theory holds – that means that it, it really did change the course of the way that an entire generation maybe thought, you know? Maybe it took a long time, and it happened on a very subconscious level, but, you know, who's to say it hasn't worked yet? This podcast paid for by Ron Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the committee to elect Ron Paul. Now, you know, I think, I think uh, and, the, and of course there's always the debate of, is it a reflection of the, of the time, or is it, uh, is it influencing that as well? But... You know, you you've touched on on just how how much is going on in this movie and how much beyond the uh, special effects there is, and and I guess we'll we'll talk about the the production aspect of this movie later, but let's get a little let's get a little more into uh, this this philosophy. You know, and, and you, as you've said, there's there's a lot going on here in terms of what they're saying about the way the world works and and this sort of geopolitics aspect of the movie but there's also a lot of different things peppered in it's not necessarily one uh cohesive philosophical idea in this movie although there are there are some big ones uh there are a lot of other little things being touched on uh even on a more surface level talk about some of those that jump out at you uh, particularly you know the idea of uh of you know the role that technology is playing in in the world. I think there's I think there's something there, and I think I think the Wachowskis, the writer, the Wachowski brothers, Larry and Andy, right? 
uh, yeah. the writers, directors. I think they're I think they're pretty smart in seeing that kind of stuff and kind of using it. But I do think it is. It was especially at the time they were writing it. I think I think the story is interesting. I think the idea that we're, you know, being being distracted while our bodies are being farmed away to machines. I think that's a pretty neat idea. Right. It's cool on a literal level uh, beyond right. all I, the the metaphors of it. Yeah. And I think, but I think on a metaphorical level, I think it's you know it's been done so many times before uh, the the Matrix, even in uh, Terminator, with the same idea. You know that machines are. One, you know, uh, but also on uh, in other movies like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, all the way back to that. So I think I don't think there's anything new necessarily, but I don't that doesn't make it not interesting, you know, and not not okay to revisit. Um, but as far as the philosophy and all the all the different spiritual aspects of it, um, again, I I think it has to be there, you know. I think that I think there is a lot there, whether it's interesting. <laughs> whether it's applicable to the actual thematic strength of the movie and the forward plot of the movie, you know, cause it's one thing to make a movie that has all kinds of crazy ideas in it and philosophies, you know, like that's, that's okay. But if it doesn't, if it's not in service of it's, it's just like a, a neat tracking shot or, you know, special effects. If it's not in service of the story, it doesn't need to be there. You know, films aren't necessarily novels. Um, and, I would argue that they're not supposed to, be, you know, they're not novels, so you can't just go off on tangents. And I think in the first Matrix movie, I think it's just there enough for you to be like, okay, okay, this kind of plays into the the overall thrust of the plot. I think in the second movie, it more reveals itself to be us at a bar with the Wachowskis and them talking our ears off about their beliefs, you know, where we're just like, all right, dude, can we please talk about something else? Yeah, I think the I think the indulgence. Uh, factor yes. definitely goes up in the Matrix sequels for sure. Absolutely, um, but I think I think it's there, and I think it's worth worth visiting in the first movie. Uh, I don't think it's worth revisiting <laughs> or reloading, if if you will, <laughs> reloading or revoluting. Right. <laughs> need to make up words. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, let's so so let's let's get into let's get into the the sort of more movie more grounded aspects of. Of this movie, um, and first let's talk about uh, to maybe make a little smoother transition into before we just go straight to pure eye candy. Let's talk about the screenplay as a story. Uh, with all the all of the metaphorical political content aside, uh, how does this movie stand up as a as an action movie screenplay? When you put this up against Terminator Two or Die Hard or, or any of the sort of great uh, effects-based action films uh, is all the talking. Does it does it hurt this movie? Does it hurt the pacing? Does it hurt the uh, you know the way that the plot moves forward and the way that we care about these characters? Yeah, I think I think the fact that it kind of works like a mystery, but at the in the first half it kind of works as a, a leisurely mystery because the main character is somebody who doesn't know he's supposed to carry it. You know, um, it's not like. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's not like a, a standard mystery. Um, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of like a mainstream kind of. I guess I guess Die Hard would be a good example, where or Raiders of the Lost Ark or something like that, where not so much Raiders. Die Hard. Let's stick with that. Um, it's not like Die Hard, where from the first you know five minutes or so, there's the threat is set up and there's a mystery and you got to figure out okay what exactly is going on here, and then towards the end, 
uh, you know, comes clear. But meanwhile, you're still there's still tension and there's still a basic need to keep moving on with with who you're watching and who you're spending time with in the movie. But uh, in the in the Matrix, your lead character doesn't really care, you know, about forward moving uh, or it does There's not a lot of tension in his story for a little while. I think I remember when I watched it. Not that I was a a very uh, high mind at the time uh, when I was, you know, I guess sixteen at the time. Uh, not that I was a very intellectual kind of guy, uh, but I, I remember not feeling it for the first hour or so. I, I remember thinking it was as an action movie. It was just kind of like I said, leisurely, and the mystery isn't really there, and it has a hard time kind of holding on to just the average viewer. But then for the last hour, yeah, I think I think because you've got raised stakes, because the father figure is in danger, and, you know, the entire universe or the entire race is, is kind of on the line, as the stakes kind of get raised, it does become a better kind of straightforward action movie where so it's you- just kind of terrifying, like, oh, if they lose, it's bad news for everybody, you know? So do you do you think that the moment that this movie really uh, becomes far more compelling is when we find out the premise of the movie, the 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 backstory, the idea that the human race is you know plugged in, being used as batteries by by machines, and that basically there's the, the alternate reality. When all that is revealed, is that uh, to you when this movie becomes uh, you know a more interesting movie? Uh, yeah, I would say that, but I still, uh, even with like a, like a, to, to kind of, um, go against what I was saying earlier, even with that, that second half, I still had a hard time caring about the characters, you know, there's something, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but I just had a hard time really relating. I think it's the, I think it's the trench coats and the sunglasses, man. Like I hate to be that superficial, but it was, it's just so mannered and so, and it just it just really keeps you from sticking with them, um, and it's kind of hard to uh, to really care. Um, I think that's what kind of stands between the viewer and the the audience, and that's why the first half is kind of works as a kind of kind of halfway interesting mystery, and the second half works as a kind of thrill thrill ride action movie. But neither work as a real strong screenplay you know what i mean you know the the way the characters are uh are built and the way they're that that group of characters is structured uh in the in the second half of the movie as you mentioned it's really it's really sort of a war movie uh the the way that they relate to each other it's it's like what we often see in these war movies where there's a there's a group of soldiers uh and we know there's violence coming and we know probably some of them are going to die and there's a bit, there's a real effort made to make them all look uh, very tough and cool, and, and particularly uh, Carrie Ann Moss's character. They they always, you know, in an action movie when we're going to have an action heroine, there's a major effort made uh, to make her look as tough as possible because we, they want us to believe that she could survive in that environment. And you know, I think that I think part of that is is what puts off you know, puts us off of those characters and makes us not as emotionally attached to them is because they don't really have any vulnerability. They're, they're all sort of, uh, these sort of soldier minded characters who are just, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of bringing the violence on themselves and they're, yeah, they're doing it for a noble cause, but, uh, you know, it's hard to care about these sort of, uh, emotionless 
tough guys when they start getting picked off one by one uh, as the yeah. movie goes along. Also, one thing I've never understood, and maybe maybe a Matrix nerd uh, or you know somebody that's really connected to the films could explain this to me, but don't they make it pretty clear that if you die in the Matrix, you die in real life, right? That's that like, correct. Um, yeah. So that's what a big part of the last part is where he starts picking people off and you're like, oh, no. They're helpless, I don't know. Uh, but, like, don't they kill a lot of people that aren't agents in the movies? Like, the the good guys? Like, in the, especially in the second movie, in the car chase. Oh, absolutely, lot, yeah. A lot of people just get smashed by cars and tankers and stuff. Or in, I mean, the, in the, the big, the big uh, shootout scene in the, in the lobby of the building. In, yeah, exactly. In the those, weren't, those weren't agents. Those were just security guards that were actually humans on the machine farm. That were plugged up that just died, you know. I think and, there's. Like, I I don't understand. Like, <laughs> that's terrible, you know. Yeah, well, that, look, I think on a on a certain level, uh, and and we've we actually saw this later in the Wachowskis' career uh, with uh, V for Vendetta, which they were involved in. They didn't direct it, but I believe they wrote it uh, or or wrote the screenplay. Yeah, that that would sound right. Um, and you know. There's this sort of idea that they appear to be okay with that uh, of the sort of noble terrorist. I think they I think they believe uh, in blurring that line a little bit as opposed to these sort of noble heroes uh, where they won't sacrifice a, an innocent to beat the bad guy. I think the Wachowskis maybe believe that. That's not a realistic approach to solving a problem uh, as big as the one that they've got, and that they appear to be uh, making their heroes into terrorists. Whether or not they condone terrorism, they certainly uh, the sentiment there seems to be that look, if if some innocent people get in the way, then those are just some eggs we're going to have to break to to you know take out this big massive evil. Um, you know that's certainly that's certainly not something they shy away from in V for Vendetta, and I think that's probably going on in the Matrix movies as well. It really puts the suicide bomber scene in Speed Racer in perspective for me. <laughs> no, uh, have you seen that, by the way? No, I have not, so... Surprisingly I'm assuming there's not really a suicide bomber scene there, in that movie. It's better because there's not murderous leads. Speed Racer doesn't go around. Actually, this isn't spoiling anything, but lots of people die in the races. Like... They 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 try to make it you know a, they're, they're, there's a level of danger involved and the family's always worried about speed when he's racing and, and, and the cars are racing this kind of car foo kind of thing where they're flipping in air and like like whipping around and like, hitting other cars with their tail ends like it's a kick you like, know like pod racing basically yeah a little bit like pod racing uh, again where people die seemingly but um, those are aliens no oh, pe- no much. people no people die Not in the pod races. Human. Um, but the, uh, where was I going? Speed racer. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I do think that civilians, like people that aren't trying to hurt speed die, or at least they they may be trying to hurt him, but they're not like, you know, they're just other drivers. I think they might meet their grisly demise as well. So I think, uh, I think we've just talked our way through my, my figuring out why I don't like the matrix movies and it's because <laughs> the have no value for human life. Yeah, well, I think they, 
you know, again, I think that's a it's there. There's a bit of anarchy involved in what in the sort of you know philosophical and political aspects of this movie. You know, they are advocating anarchy in a way and overthrow uh, fat security guards. Yeah, overthrowing the power structure, and I I think uh, you know that's a radical viewpoint to take, and I, I think, think it's irresponsible. I mean, oh, just, absolutely. Uh, there's no question that it's that it's uh, moral. That there, there's moral relativism you know, throughout that ideal, you know, but I think, I think that, you know, people that have radical ideas like that are often, uh, willing Easy to, that, they're often willing to, to forego, uh, you know, other, other, uh, sort of values and, and, and any other moral code that might get in the way of them accomplishing something they think is really important. You know, I don't, I don't believe the Wachowskis have ever killed someone in real life, but I, I have the feeling that they might be one of those people who, uh, uh, you know, sort of says of, of acts of terrorism, hey, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. That's a, that's a phrase that always sort of angers me a little bit, but yeah. it's something that you hear a lot, especially in and snooty can, college I, classrooms. Yeah, and I and I can see where that's coming from, too. Um it's I don't know, but I, I wish I wish it had been at least addressed. You know, I don't know if it maybe it is addressed in the in the second or third. I films, don't believe but, it is. I don't believe it is. Yeah, honestly, I'm not going to revisit them to find <laughs> out. And and we're talking about the first movie, and I don't and I know it's not addressed in the first movie. So uh, yeah, I think I think it's uh, I'm, I, it doesn't help the film. But on a but on a basic action movie level, it's fun. And as a and as an interpretation of Rage Against the Machine, <laughs> as as a as On a band, screen, yeah, I think I think it's okay. You could just they, cut that shootout is, scene to Rage Against the Machine music, and you've got the video there. I think I might be watching that on mute on YouTube right now. That's <laughs> um, they uh, they are literally Rage Against Raging Against Machines. So I like the subtlety. Well, let's talk about let's touch on the the uh, production aspect as well because yeah. we would be remiss if we didn't mention it um you know it was a it was a special effects revolution now i think i think there was kind of a sentiment excuse me i think there was a little bit of a sentiment that uh we were gonna see that a lot i remember thinking that at the time i remember thinking wow bullet time is something that we're gonna that we're gonna see more in movies now because it's so cool but it, it it really sort of remains a unique feature of the matrix movie this kind of this kind of uh, strange photography method of uh, putting several I – mean, I'm sure it's used more than I realize, but of the idea of putting a number of cameras uh, around a single moment and then I guess the, those moments of photography are sort of morphed together uh, using a computer. Right. Um, but, you know, it was, it was definitely in terms of uh, combining – photography and uh and computer generated imagery it was it was taking that to a level that we had not seen before it was doing things with actual film that we hadn't seen done before yeah i think i I think you're right i think it is an interesting thing um but if you think about it what what is the the cinematic uh grammar utility of it you know what i'm saying like what well it's cool it's like, like okay. it's, it's no, like that, that doesn't fly. <laughs> no, it's, it's look. It's that's what it does. It 
It's, right, uh, but no, but no. You, I mean, but you look at it. If you if you see a zoom, right? If a zoom used properly means something, right? You know, uh, uh, a track means something. Uh, POV means something. What what does the bullet time spin around slow motion shot really tell you? On a, if you had it on mute and you're watching it, and you're like, okay, uh, the filmmaker is telling me something here. What is he telling me? Oh, that this. I guess I guess it means that this moment in this character's life is really important. Like. This person has never kicked a cop in the face <laughs> as importantly as she is doing right now. I think what uh, it, I think if you uh, it makes sense. It makes sense in the film uh, whenever he dodges the bullets at the end because you see like what he's ooh what he's truly capable of. Um, but I think the reason it's not stuck around, other than in really bad, you know, mock mock Matrix movies like Ultraviolet or something like that. Um, where it's just a direct homage and a direct ripoff of the Matrix. I think the reason it hasn't stuck around is because it has real, no real use outside of that particular universe, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You're definitely right that it doesn't have a lot of it, it doesn't serve uh, a narrative purpose the way that the other uh, tools of cinematography that you mentioned do. I do think that it, it uh, you know, if there's a cinematic grammar to say NFL films. Uh, you know, that, that's basically what it is. It's a, it's a method of highlighting an impressive physical feat, uh, in a way that you wouldn't be able to do, uh, even with super slow-mo, you know, I I think, I think it's just taking the idea of super slow motion to the next level by not only is this action happening in super slow motion, but we're going to rotate around it happening so that you can be even more, uh, impressed with what's happening here, you know. Yeah. I, it's 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 highlighter is essentially what it is, you know. Which is, uh, I've never read a novel. What if you read Moby Dick and <laughs> an important chapter was like in bold and highlighted and uh, had three D glasses with it that you could look at? Right. You know, you'd be like, this is a uh, this is completely taking me out of the the narrative. That is essentially uh, what it's doing, yeah. yeah. And and you know it's the same with three hundred. And I think I think it's kind of it kind of got taken to a different level with three hundred, but it was more on a variable speed kind of thing where they used the the idea of slowing down and speeding up within without a cut, uh, and with with zooming, uh, kind of in a new way. But again, it's for to show how important it is when Gerard Butler <laughs> kicks some dude. <laughs> chest or well, again, it's, chops his arm off and then flicks it towards the camera it only, like turtles and tongue. It only has it only has narrative importance. I guess if you really wanted to look for a, for a way that it serves the story, uh, what it does is it's an adjective for uh, describing how impressive uh, this character is to be able to mm-hmm. do what they're doing. You know, and bend the fists of the world there, and and it kind of makes sense in three hundred too, because the whole thing's told from a narr- from like a folk narrator, you know, who's like amping it up, yep. and that the way they show Leonidas chopping off dude's arm is the cinematic equivalent of David Wenham talking about how freaking much he can bench press, you know, or something like that. It's the <laughs> it's the same thing, you know. It's like oh look at that for five minutes, kind of equivalent. Yeah. I don't know. But that, then again, nobody likes it when people s- tell stories that way in real life. 
Then he did this. It was it was so awesome. It was it was amazing. I'm gonna keep repeating it. Visual hyperbole. We can call it that. Yeah. Nice. I like it. <laughs> well, maybe like we can. Visual hyperbole. Maybe we... it's going in the film dictionary. Yeah. Maybe maybe we'll close out with that then. <laughs> I like it. Okay, man. Well, uh, thanks for joining us once again for uh, this Film Nerds podcast on Prestige Blockbusters. And join us next time when we will talk about The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. 